0: Yes, I am. Great. All right, take out your scripture and open with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. I hope you have your Christmas cards out already. We've received a bunch of them from friends and family Way. It's a time when we send those out, and uh, in the last couple decades, it's been very common to send out a picture of your family or your children or your dog with a, with a Christmas wish on the bottom there, warm sentiments that are printed out on those cards. Uh, things that we've received say things such as warmth, joy, and happiness this time of year to you and your family. May God bless you. In this season of joy, peace on earth and best wishes for the new year. These are all the sentiments that, that Christmas drums up, warm sentiments, fuzzy sentiments, if you will, which is wonderfully appropriate for this time of year. But Matthew gives us a very different perspective of the Christmas story, We're kind of used to, we kind of live in this time of year in the Luke's gospel. But we're called to to look at Matthew's version of what happened that night 2,000 years ago. And it's a a very different kind of Christmas card. And so look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. God's word says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, The king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and they sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. And And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all the region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Father God, it is awesome what we read here in your word that, that you stepped into humanity, you stepped into time. Lord, help us to understand what you have for us here. Help us to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Both Luke and Matthew contain the birth narratives of this long-awaited Messiah. But they're very different Christmas cards, conveying very different sentiments. While angels appear to Mary and encourage her in the Gospel of Luke, in Matthew they come to warn. In Luke you have the lowly of society, the shepherds, seeking baby Jesus out to warn to, to worship him. In Matthew, you have King Herod seeking to kill him. In Luke, you have songs of joy and praise. In Matthew, you have the lamentations over the slaughtered children. In Luke, you have Mary and Joseph entering Bethlehem to search for a room where the birth might happen. But in Matthew, you have them fleeing Bethlehem for their lives. In Luke, you have silent night and swaddling clothes. In Matthew, you have the slaughter of the innocents. So in Luke, you have the warm, fuzzy, Charlie Brown type of Christmas. But in Matthew, he presents four different kind of Christmas cards to us. And we're going to look at each one of those this morning. And the first Christmas card that, that we see in the opening 12 verses is, he wants us to have a very devious Christmas. Devious This is what we see in the first 12 verses. Here Matthew is telling us of the wise men that are coming. Some translations that you might read say magi. They come from the east to honor and worship this this king of the Jews. And this is a time when when we wish we had a lot of answers that that Matthew just seems to gloss over. We, We have a lot of questions like, where did these wise men specifically come from? He says the east, but we never really know. Who were these wise men? I mean, magi were were counselors to the king, but but who were they? Beyond that, we know nothing. How many were there? I mean, our Christmas cards always have 3, right? But we're never told how many. We're told how many gifts, and that's where we get the 3, but it could have been more. They could have been traveling with a great entourage. What 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 was this sign in the skies that they were looking for in the east? Again, we don't know. Some have speculated that, that they had some of the prophecies of Daniel and gleaned it from there. But we just don't know. And how did they follow a star directly? I mean, when I was a kid, that's the part of this Christmas story that we read every, every Christmas Eve that always got me. How did they follow a star? Have you ever tried following a star? You'll just follow it forever. Forever. How did it lead them to a place? That's why I tend to think that this was some kind of supernatural light. But Matthew doesn't delve into these questions. Those are questions that we kind of want to know the answer to, but Matthew kind of pushes them aside because he doesn't want to distract us from the main point here. And the main point is that Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, that foreshadowed, And foretold Messiah has been born. That's the point that Matthew wants to get across to us. And Herod's reaction here is very interesting, isn't it? Herod was the reigning king of the Jews. He was not in David's lineage. He was simply a steward of the throne. A steward of the throne of Israel. A placeholder king, if you will. And when he heard about this king of the Jews being born, he was threatened by that. He wanted to keep the power and prestige of the throne. He wanted to keep his position. He didn't want to step aside. If you're a a fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I think this is where J.R.R. Tolkien got the, the character of Denethor, the steward of Gondor from, from Herod. If you remember in Tolkien's tale, he's sitting on the throne of Gondor and he, when he hears that Aragorn, the king in the true lineage, is coming, there's somebody that actually deserves the throne, he feels very threatened and he gets bitter and he protects his throne. That's what's going on with Herod. He's protecting his throne. He's refusing to step down. for refusing to bow down to baby Jesus. As a matter of fact, he, he doesn't just refuse to bow down. He's hatching a plan to kill that baby. So he acts nice. And he hatches this plan through the wise men to kill this baby. So he gathers the chiefs, uh, chief priests and scribes because he doesn't know his, his, uh, his Bible. And he asks them, where is this king going to be born and and they quote from Micah chapter 5 verse 2 right here in our text it's quoted for us for you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel Bethlehem is the answer there and under the sly pretense that he too wanted to worship this king he asked the Magi to go and find him and then come back and just tell me which house he's in so that I can go and worship. And When the Magi found Jesus, they did two things. The text tells us they acknowledge Jesus as the king. And we see this through the gifts that he gives. These are, these are kingly gifts. These are, these are gifts fit for a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the second thing, and most interestingly, the thing they do, is they bow down and they worship him. And that's not typical for for earthly kings. You bow down, but you don't worship. But they acknowledge that there's something beyond just his physical kingship here. So here we have two reactions to Jesus in in the first 12 verses. The reaction and the action of the Magi and the reaction and action of Herod. Resentment or worship? And I wonder today what our, our reaction, what our heart reaction is like to, to Jesus. To this newborn king that we've been singing about. To this heir to the throne of your heart, King. Jesus has two titles that are repeated throughout Matthew. In fact, they're repeated throughout the gospel. Jesus is your Savior, but Jesus is also your Lord. He's your King. He's your monarch. You are His doulos. You are His servant. As Savior, He comes to rescue you from the penalty of your sins. That's why Jesus was born. He's born to, to throw you a, a life vest in the chilly waters of sin before you go under. He comes to offer you hope and death. He comes to offer you peace with God. He comes to offer you acceptance as a child of God. He comes to offer you everlasting love. He comes to offer you a faithlessness that he says, I will never leave you comes to offer you all these things as your Savior. But he just doesn't come as your Savior. He comes as, you can't have a, a heads without a tail. You can't separate that coin. He is your Savior, and he is also your Lord. He is God incarnate. He's the king over your life. He wants to take his rightful place on the throne of your heart. He wants to rule and direct your life. Those are words we don't like hearing. I remember, maybe you do too, when you were teaching your first child to drive and you would drive with them in the passenger seat. I just went through this with my eldest and you would talk to them about how to drive but then there came the moment when you actually had to open the door and get out and walk around and sit in the passenger seat. And this passenger seat does not have one of those brakes on that side. It's really giving up control. I have no control. Avonlea is in the driver's seat. And that's perhaps gives us an idea of, of the type of, of authority and control that God wants in our life. He wants to actually direct your life. That's what it means to have Jesus as Lord of your life. In 1 Corinthians 6, God's word tells us that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God's word is saying, you're not your own anymore. If you've given your life to Christ, you're not your own anymore. So what's your reaction this morning? Is it more like the Magi where you'd say, you know what, I'm going to sit in the passenger seat. God has control of my life. I will follow his lead. Or is it part of our flesh like Herod where we just strap ourselves in to that driver's seat? The second sentiment that Matthew has for us here is have a very tense Christmas. We see this in verses 13 through 15. God has already warned the Magi not to return to Herod. He's already done that, and now God turns to Joseph, and 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 warns Joseph to flee because he, Herod is seeking to destroy. The, our our Bibles say, but but there he's he's really seeking to kill the, his baby. Joseph is instructed to flee to, of all places, Egypt, where it's safe. And so they flee under the cover of night and stay there until the threat is over. And Matthew says here, that was done so that, to fulfill the prophecy found in the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. That out of Egypt, God's Son will come. The Messiah King would come from Egypt. He is reminding the people of the whole Exodus when he is doing this. The biggest event in the history of Israel was the Exodus when God supernaturally took his people, his son, and freed them from physical slavery supernaturally. What Matthew is drumming up here is, is that whole motif. And, and as, as you'll see as we go through the rest of Matthew, it's really a new exodus that Matthew is talking about. It's a new exodus he's foreshadowing here. Another exodus is going to happen. And Matthew's gospel is going to tell us about this, how God once again is going to free his people. But he's not going to free them from physical slavery, but a spiritual one. He's not going to lead his people to a new geography. He's going to lead his people to a new life. He's not going to free them from physical slavery. He's going to free them from the slavery of their sins. And he's not going to be led by Moses. He's going to be led by the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And one of the signs of the true Messiah is that he would come out of Egypt. Just like Israel did. But he is not freed from his sins. He's come to free us from our sins. By living this perfect life. By living, by living a sinless life. By doing something that you and I are absolutely incapable of doing which is satisfying God's law. Because when God gave his law and said, these 623 things you must do in order to be saved, if we want to codify it, quantify it, he was serious. And Jesus has come to fulfill that law perfectly. And he never sinned. In all his acts, he did out of pure motivation and he earned heaven. The only person to ever earn heaven. And instead of going to heaven, he, he chose to, to suffer and die in our place. He chose to go to Golgotha, the, cl- the cross on that hill, and suffer and die in our place. And through his dying, through substituting himself for us, by taking our penalty upon himself, by absorbing our sin and taking the penalty. If you place your trust in Jesus, what Jesus has done for you and not what you can do for you, the Bible says you too shall be saved. You won't go under those chilly waters without a life raft. And Jesus proved that what he did was actually true by rising from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. That is the exodus from slavery that Jesus comes to give you. And is offered free. It is offered with no strings attached. That's the narrative that Matthew is interested in telling in his gospel how Jesus does this new exodus. The third sentiment that Matthew wants to give us is have a very somber Christmas. Somberness. We all have our favorite Christmas albums. I don't know what yours is. My favorite Christmas artist is Nat King Cole. I think his his voice was made to sing the Christmas carols. And as a little boy growing up, we had an album of Nat King Cole songs. And on that album is the strangest Christmas song ever. The little boy that Santa Claus forgot. Does anybody know this song? He's the little boy that Santa Claus forgot. Goodness knows he didn't want a lot. No? Oh, you got to Spotify this when you get home. So in that, in the song, here are the lyrics of the chorus. In the streets, he envies all those lucky boys. Then wanders home to last year's broken toys. I'm so sorry for this laddie. He hasn't got a daddy. He's the little boy that Santa Claus forgot. What a somber sentiment to be singing, right? But we would hear that over and over and over again in our household. I always wondered how that song got on a Christmas album, right? Same thing with verses 16 through 18. How did verses 16 through 18 get into the Christmas story? We never find this piece of the Christmas story on a Christmas card because it's horrific, it's awful. Herod, enraged because he's been deceived by the wise man, by, because his devious plot has been spoiled, decides to protect his throne another way. He goes to plan B. He knows now where the child has been born, and he knows about the time frame he was born in. And so he takes a, 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 a Holocaust type of perspective, and he, he decides to kill all the children two years or younger, in that region. Daniel Doriani comments and says, so as to have a ghastly margin of error that would ensure the death of his supposed rival. It is ghastly. Herod's being thorough. This is Herod's final solution, if you will. And this slaughter was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah 500 years before. In chapter 31. The irony of the birth of Christ is that it's not only a time of peace and hope, which it is, it's also a time of fear and violence. As one person put it as I was explaining it to him this week, he said, Gee, it seems like Jesus' early years was like a high speed car chase with people coming and going, weaving in and out of danger. It's kind of what Matthew is, is presenting for us. That's because Satan is at work here. Satan doesn't want this child to be born. He doesn't want this child to live. As we go through Matthew, we'll see several times when, when satanic activity is particularly acute. We'll see it at the end of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane, won't we? In Matthew chapter 26, Satan hates what Jesus is going to do, he's going, what he's going to accomplish at the cross. He hates it. He doesn't want him to go to the cross, and so he's tempting him in the garden. There must be another way. Find another way. You don't want to go to the cross. You don't want to go through that pain and suffering. You don't want to go through that separation. You don't want to... And he's sweating blood listening to this. And he's pleading with his Heavenly Father, if there's another way, please, this cup pass from me. That's Satan whispering to Jesus. And Satan and his minions whisper to us as well, avoid doing the hard things. Take it easy in your Christianity. Take the less costly way out. Take the less sacrificial path. There's a great book called Do Hard Things. It's, it's written by uh, a couple of, of men who, who wrote this for teenagers, but, but I think every Christian should read this book. It encourages us them to steer their lives into harder territory. The chapters encourage them to get out of your comfort zone. Go beyond what is required. Attempt things too big to do alone. Do things that don't pay off immediately. And go against the crowd. Those are all hard things to do. And we struggle with all five of those as adults. Our flesh will always want to steer us away from them. Satan and his minions and our flesh is drawn toward this way as well to take the easy road. Stay in your comfort zone. Do just enough in your Christianity. Isolate yourself. Only do things that you see immediate payoff for. And move with the crowd. Move with the crowd. That's the easy thing. I love what G.K. Chesterton wrote. He said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So Satan was at work at the end of his ministry. Satan was also at work at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 4, where he's tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, in the desert. He hates what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is coming to take back his kingdom. Jesus is coming to bring light into darkness. Jesus is coming to put, give hope to the hopeless. So he tempts Jesus to take a shortcut. Just bow down to me and the world is yours, he says. Gosh, and that's a temptation that, that we hear all the time too, isn't it? He, just take that shortcut. Short-circuit things. Don't work too hard at your faith. Read over that part in Philippians. Don't ask people to hold you accountable. Don't wake up early to do your devotions. Don't join a discovery group or go to Sunday school. That will cut into your time. Don't make church that important in your life. Just float along in your faith. Just float along. Just short circuit. Take the shortcut. It's not a long obedience in the same direction, he whispers. It's a short sprint with a long rest. My mother used to tell me that Christianity is like walking into God's mansion. It's just that a lot of people open the door and walk into the foyer, and then they fall asleep. Well we see, we see Satan also at the beginning of Jesus' life, and that's what we see here. We see Satan working overtime to try and nip what Jesus is about to do in the bud. We read about this, ironically enough, in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of the birth of Christ. In chapter 12, we read this. John then says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of a woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who ruled the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up by God to his throne. That's what's going on here. Satan is that dragon waiting to devour this child. If I can nip this in the bud, everything else doesn't happen. Right? That's, that's what governments do to movements. They try to nip them in the bud. The Tiananmen Square, nipping things in the bud. Don't let, don't let freedom get hold. If I, can, if I can kill Jesus, the dragon says. And that's what Satan was doing through Herod. And that's what he continues to do. One of the things I tell new Christians when they come and see me is, your life is going to be very hard for a time. Why do I give that counsel to new Christians? Why would you say that? Why wouldn't you say things are going to be nice and rosy and good and perfect? Because Satan wants to nip that in the bud. So he's going to put all kinds of pressure On that person. So that they'll say, you know what, this Christianity thing, that's not worth it. It's too hard. My family's falling apart. My job is falling apart. My emotional stability is falling apart. Forget it. I'm going back to drinking. And he'll put all kinds of hardships and difficulties in our lives to try and make us say those four words. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Those are the words that he wants all new Christians and Christians to say. Because he wants to derail our faith. The last Christian sentiment that Matthew gives us is, Have a very fearful Christmas. This is what we see in the last verses, 19 through 23. The angel encourages Mary and Joseph to return from Egypt to Israel. But when they arrive, they find out that, yes, Herod is dead, but his son is reigning. And they go, he might be after the child as well. And the angel warns them, don't go back to Bethlehem. And so, they find a great place to hide. They find a great place to to be out of everybody's thoughts. A place that no one really cared about. A place that no one wanted to go to. A place that no one would suspect at at all that the Messiah would come from. A place that they referred to as podunk. Hicksville, a jerkwater town. They decide to go. That's the perfect place, Nazareth. And Matthew tells us that this also fulfilled what the prophet said about the Messiah, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you probably notice that this prophecy actually never occurs in the Old Testament. So, what's going on there? Many have offered many solutions, but the one I find most satisfying is Matthew was using a common feeling about Nazareth, that it was scorned and hated, backwater town, and anything coming from Nazareth would be despised and hated as well. We see that in, in Nathanael's Reaction when Philip comes to tell him, "We found the Christ. We found the Christ." And what does the Nathaniel say in John chapter one verse forty-five? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Matthew is using colloquial shorthand to point to the prophet's words that the Messiah would be a despised and scorned person. And the psalmist writes, "The Messiah will be scorned by men and despised by people." Daniel writes that he's, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. But perhaps the, the prophet that he's referring to the most is Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. It's found pretty much in the middle of your Bible. And I want to use Isaiah 53 as I read this as our entryway into the Lord's Supper and as our way to understand what God is doing by bringing Jesus out of Nazareth. Look with me at 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Christ grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who was for men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This table represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but matzo bread is is made in a specific way. It's made so that it's pierced. That's to remind us what Christ went through to save us from our own sins, the penalty that he took in his own body. If you look at the matzah, it's also slightly browned in stripes. They did that to remind us of the, the whipping that Jesus took that we don't have to take because he took it. And when we eat the matzah or the bread, it, cru- it is crushed by our teeth because he was crushed for our iniquities. All this is so that we can be reminded of the great gift of Jesus Christ in our life, of the wonderful way that He has taken what we deserve, and He has given us His righteousness, which we don't deserve. That's the wonderful transaction that goes on at the cross. It's a wonderful transaction that happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So as we distribute the bread and the wine, I would encourage you to think about what Christ said on that night 2,000 years ago when he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is like my body that will be broken for you in a few hours. When you see me in a few hours... Remember what I'm doing. I'm taking your penalty. Let's remember that and celebrate together as a body.